0: Right morning Joe. lovely to see you. Um, no, just just um, start by just explaining who you are, what you do.
1: Absolutely John, so I am Jo um, and I am a parent to two autistic teen children, so I'm a parent um, and I also lead a non-for-profit organisation which supports autistic girls and women and those assigned female at birth, so we're a an alternative learning provision. So I've got kind of a parent hat, professional hat, and I'm a neurodivergent woman as well.
0: Fill that out a little bit about um, how, how your organisation works. What is it is you actually offer practically?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. So um, essentially we set ourselves up three years ago and we're a non-for-profit, because there's kind of a lack of support and understanding out there for autistic girls um, and women, and those assigned female at birth that may identify other ways, that, you know, the lack of kind of social spaces or, you know, understanding and support in school and so on. Uh, We set up our organization to provide that within our area. So in Surrey. Um, So we run um, weekend after school, Holiday activities, which are social interest based, so round hobbies, gaming, arts and crafts, animals, baking, cosplay manga, you can you name it. So we run lots of different activities around things that the girls and the teens want to do. Um, but all of that is underpinned by a sort of social, emotional, mental health and wellbeing curriculum. So we do lots of activities to support with that, um, as well as life um, and work skills. So we run activities for seven to 12 year olds. 13 to 18 year olds and then 18 to kind of early 30s but we also support um, parents and carers as part of our offering as well um, and essentially we're just a community John um, of, of you know autistic girls and women and those around them um, professionals, um, and professionals we, and we offer support to each other and fun and enjoyment I hope. <laughs> From
0: your various perspectives what is it that you understand inclusion to be?
1: Um, I mean, I, you know, I guess it's, it, you know, in really simple terms, kind of, it's it's exactly what it, it says it is. For me, it's about ensuring that an individual um, or a group who might be at a disadvantage in some way has got equal access to something, uh, whether it's education, whether it's an activity to an opportunity to the, something in the community. Um, but it's about ensuring they're included in all the ways that matter. Um, you know, I think sometimes it's seen in well, no, not by many people necessarily, but I think sometimes it's seen as just providing access, like equal access to academic education. Um, but actually, I think it's ensuring people are included in other ways as well, um, like you know, physically, socially, emotionally. Um, in terms of kind of life life, work skill preparedness, like in lots of different things as well. Um, And I think it's about kind of emphasising sort of um, ensuring people are included that, you know, might, you know, have kind of financial hardship or, you know, difficulties in their background or that might not be included, um, you know, because of around the kind of nine protected uh, characteristics as well, like, you know, age or disability or kind of gender and and that kind of thing. Um, But I guess for me, for inclusion, um, and I've kind of been reflecting on this quite a lot, is it's it's about essentially it's about ensuring fairness. It's about ensuring kindness. It's about redressing the balance um, and making a place, whether it's an organisation like ours or a school, kind of a safe space um, for people who don't always have safe spaces. Um, And I think it's got to be central Um, to uh, any organisations or schools ethos you know their their equality diversion and inclusion policy needs to be real it needs to be breathing it needs to be more than just lip service um, if that makes sense
2: oh very much so yeah yeah so a couple of things
0: out of that I mean one what just that last point so um it, it sounds like it's attitudinal as opposed to a thing it is actually values and attitudes is that fair
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's got to be, I think it's, that's why I say it's about, it's got to be central to York ethos your ethos as a school or an organization you know we've written ours it's about what you believe what you're committed to and your your you know your approach to equality and diversity inclusion has got to be absolutely central to that and and you've got to be willing you know we've written our equality diversity and inclusion policy at the beginning of when i started when i started the organization three years ago it's been through quite a few iterations and we've had to and it's about it being a learning document as well if that makes sense um so yeah it is attitude and all like you've got to be it's it, you know it's got to reflect a belief um and a commitment and not just be about a tick box thing okay someone's got adhd they need access to this access to that access to that if that makes sense
0: well and also that, that also picks up the other point i was going to ask was when you were saying it's about equal access equal access doesn't mean same no that's yeah yeah it it can it, it's it, it's something about um acknowledging difference and uh, working with difference is that fair
1: yeah for sure so yeah absolutely i mean i think you know probably quite a lot of people have seen that you know that that visual i think that's you know you see on social media all the time which is about equity it's about ensuring kind of you know not making sure that everyone's got the same thing but ensuring that you've got equal access to something Um, through being you know uh, being supported in different ways according to what it is so let's say if um, someone let's say it's just about getting into the school environment you know there might be some children that find it easy to transition into school so they don't need extra support to to Get into school, other people might find it a lot harder to transition from home to school. So things may be put in place like a slightly different start time. It might be that they're met by someone. It might be that there's a visual, you know, a timetable of what's happening that day to support them in. So although the things, the scaffolds, the accommodations being put in place are different for the person that struggles with that thing, it's ensuring equality because it's meaning that both of them are, you know, just as or more likely to be, you know, equality for them getting into school
0: so given that are you are you able to give us any examples of where you've seen good practice where you've seen inclusion in in action
1: maybe it might be helpful if i mean i can approach it as a parent about ways in which my children's schools have supported that inclusive access maybe that might be helpful first of all and then i can maybe talk about it as a as a kind of from our organization which is obviously kind of slightly different from a school um because you know we're we're an alternative learning for those who are kind of not in school um so would would that be yes please would that be would that be helpful so um i guess thinking about um as a parent to two autistic young people i have that one of my children is in specialist school and has been for 12 years uh one of my children is in mainstream school and has been in mainstream it's in year nine and has been in mainstream school the whole time and we've worked with schools who have had very inclusive um practices and we've had schools that have not so as as a parent maybe you know maybe I can share some of the things that I've found that have been really inclusive is that is that okay yeah absolutely yeah so um I think uh for me the schools that have been really inclusive and, and really supported inclusion with my children are those who have been willing to talk and listen to me my husband you know us as parents also children as like equal partners um to understand that like we're equal professionals too and and you know they've they've taken the time to kind of get to know our young person what their areas of you know need are what their interests are they've not made assumptions about what the the children need because of their profiles they've not been like oh well this person's autistic they're going to need this this and this like they've taken the time to get to know my young person my child they've got taken time to kind of talk to us to really bespoke um what's needed so I think that's 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 when schools have been really inclusive. Um, you know, they've just taken that time to get to know us and had a conversation at the start and, and to maintain that good relationship with us. So I think that's been really key to inclusion for my children, um, that they've, they've talked with us about what accommodations and challenges there have been rather than just assume them.
0: Is there an example of one of those accommodations? Sorry, Joe to, to interrupt. Is there an example of one of those accommodations that, um, that comes
1: to mind? um let me have a little think sorry so with one of my children um i'm just trying to think about which one that they'd be happy for me to share so bear with me um homework for example yeah, homework. I mean, okay, so this is uh, this is one. So I recently went into my daughter's school because she's approaching her GCSE years and she's really anxious about it. And she's concerned about the amount of work she has to do and the fact that for her home is home and school is school and she wants to get most of her work done at home. So I went in to meet the Senko co- to have a chat with them um, and to talk about whether or not it'd be possible for her to do a reduced timetable potentially next year if the Kind of doing nine or 10 GCSEs is just too much for her. Um, And they were open to have that discussion with me and said, yeah, let's kind of chat about it. Maybe we'll try doing the nine first of all. But if she's finding it hard to manage the workload and to organize herself, because she's got ADHD as well, then we can look at putting different things in place. Maybe one of all two of the subjects she doesn't do and she can kind of do any um, homework or revision or whatever in that time. So, you know, the fact that they were willing to just look at a different option or way of doing things I think was really helpful um you know as, as far as kind of uh, I spoke to them as well about the fact that you know obviously she's in a mainstream school so some of the teachers don't really understand about autism and neurodiversity they've just not been trained in it yet and um, so I approached the kind of the head of pastoral care about it and they've said you know They've got an equality, diversity and inclusion um, council within the schools led by sixth formers. Sixth formers have said that, you know, um, understanding and supporting neurodiversity is a key thing in their school this year. So they'd like me to do some work with them to help train the teachers and to support kind of neurodiversity in the rest of the school, whether it's workshops with neurodivergent girls, whether it's a bit of support with the whole school community. So that that kind of thing has been really really helpful um just that receptiveness and kind of willingness to to work with us to look at you know making accommodations that actually essentially are not just going to support my daughter in the end they're probably going to support others too um and now they're getting this kind of you know they're, they're 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 you know they've got this kind of um they're making the effort with her they're, they're going to be doing it with other people so i think for me that's been really helpful because it just feels like I think a lot of parents sometimes feel that they're the problem parent that if they're going to talk to a school that you know they're going to be either ignored or dismissed or seen as a bit of a troublemaker um but you know I think I've been really lucky that within a lot of my children's schools it's been a really lovely positive partnership and even if they're not going to do absolutely everything they're going to be receptive to trying to to make some changes so um So, yeah, I guess that's one of the key things. And also for me, it's schools that are open to supporting strengths and interests and not just challenges. So, for example, one of my children has got is really good at music. I never knew this, but they're really good at music. And the music department in the school when he was eight took the time to to get to know him, to support him with music. They've taught him how to play Tuba, can you believe it um he's doing his grade eight in the tuba next week and um, we wouldn't have ever thought that and the reason I say that's about inclusion is that he struggles to talk to people he doesn't know um and in social settings well actually that brass ensemble and working you know in a group in that way has been a way of including him into kind of social groups within the school community so you know I think a key point around inclusion is around strengths and around sort of interests as well um
2: i really like sense. the fact that you've, you're, the, you're the first person who's brought out the strength side a rather yeah, yeah. deficit model side um that we've chatted to and that's and that's really empowering and what and what it all distills down to which you've given us really nicely is listening active listening yeah i mean you're very you're very correct in that um on if you're working with parents or you're on parent forums or you know parents are part of your working life they, a lot of the, uh, as you said, they're set up, the system seems to set them up to have to fight, which is instantly gone. If you listen, if people listen and understand each other, you know, um, isn't that the way of the world, of course. So I'm really pleased you've brought that out. Um, and that, but that yeah. an issue of time, doesn't it? Because to give somebody that time and to give it in, in a, in a, in your, in your group, I presume you can do that better. But in a busy school, that might be problematic.
1: I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, time is a massive one. And if you wouldn't mind, if I just go to the strengths thing, first of all, because I think what you pulled up there, that's really important. We do work on a deficit model. and That's why up here we talk about we do things around social interests, because the things you're interested in tend to be the things you're good at and then the things that you might work in in the future. You know, so. For example, we, you know, I think and every month we talk about a different strength we might have. You know, we're meticulous. We might be this. We don't try to over it. But I think a strength based model is really important. Um, as far as time is concerned, I mean, absolutely. You know, I, when I was first teaching in school, I was, you know, obviously I'm more specialist now, but I was in mainstream school and I was a 21, 22-year-old teacher with 200 kids coming through my classroom every day. I really cared about these kids. I was, you know, trying to work out, you know, how to do the job as effectively as possible. But, you know, 200 kids coming through your classroom, it's it's so hard to put that time in to really hear them, particularly if they struggle to communicate how they feel. So, you know, to really get to know them and hear what they need or to speak to parents and so on, doing all those things that support effective inclusion, I think is well, it's, it's really, you know, is quite difficult. There are like smaller things that are easier you know some of the accommodations they're very quick having a do we really like the uniform thing is a massive thing for me there's no money attached to saying someone can come to school in a pe kit or a hoodie um, because you know my because of the sensory issues around uniform so there are accommodations that can be done to support inclusion without time you know lots of time without lots of money but i'm not going to lie it's a massive barrier i mean we don't have much money as an organization and on a sunday i support sort of 50 girls 50 parents and carers and we have a waiting list so i have the same difficulties in a sense because we don't have infinite funding to provide one-to-one for pupils or to to do x y and z so Joe, that yeah.
2: fifty are they groups of? They're presumably groups of. Yeah, groups yeah. Are, so
1: we have got a group size
2: for for. Maybe so not- our group sizes are no more
1: than eight. So we've got a big waiting list. You know, we've got three four hundred families registered with us. We try not to reduce that waiting list as much as we can. But on monthly Sundays, we run groups for girls, teens and then women. So a girls group, we might have three groups of eight or nine in the morning, age ten to twelve and then there's lunch, and then there's three groups of eight or nine, seven to ten-year-olds in the afternoon. And each group, we, you know, it's like, there's a lot of work that goes into it. Each group's got eight or nine autistic girls, which we match according to profile, interests, lots of different things that we think that will make them cohesive and a group where they'll make connections. And then I, every group has got their own room, have a group lead, and then I have a sort of a support, a bit like a TA in each group. Some groups I have one more because of the needs of the group. We've got a lot of girls with PDA. Some who've not been in school for a while. I'll do more. And then the way we do it is we have outdoor activities and then indoor activities that they do as well. So 50 sounds like a lot, but actually it's it's six groups of eight or nine. Um, and then there's obviously the support for the parents in smaller groups as well. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Can I
0: just... You, you you gave us a, a bit of insight into the um the two roles the parent and the professional when you were saying about how you were then asked to go into the school by the six formers who were taking the lead on neurodiversity um and so you what was there or i suppose what is the difference between the parent having the conversation with the school and the professional having the conversation with the school about inclusion
1: oh that's a really good question I mean the thing is they've only just asked me so I've not done it yet okay you know so you know I can't talk about it like, like this I think it's just uh, I don't think I think I'm t- you know I'm talking as a parent I'm talking as a professional I'm just trying to be real um and authentic about it and bring the different things in and I think I'm lucky in a sense because I've got lots of hats I've got the hat as the parent who knows what it's like when your child is being well-supported, included, and when they're not. I've got the hat as the professional that knows how tough it is and how much we care um, and how much goes on behind the scenes that no one knows. Like, you know, the groups we run on a Sunday with those 100 people, there's no one could imagine how much hard work goes into that to make sure it works really well, you know, how much planning, risk assessing, information sharing all that stuff there is but also I have the hat I guess as a you know a neurodivergent woman who's kind of lived it herself a little bit so I don't think about it in terms of the different hats you just got to approach it with the kind of knowledge and experience you've got and I I do and I talk to my kids about it as well if I'm going into their school to make sure that whatever I'm doing is is something that they're comfortable with right because if they don't want me to go
3: in then I'm not gonna go in So thank you, Joe. It's been fascinating so far. Um, I had two um questions really. Uh, and, and the first one is: you've explained very clearly the importance of the relationship between the parent, the professional, and the school. And I, I'm not that's an artificial divide between professional and school because we all know that professionals are in schools. But my question is: do you have any advice? particularly for parents where the school is not receptive to recognizing the need to provide suitable support, or maybe there are other reasons why they're unable to engage in the way that we know is important and on all the ways in which you've modeled that has been effective, for example, in your context. You know, there's a the whole list of legitimate reasons why some schools may struggle on this. But from a parental point of view, in terms of supporting a young person, if a school has been approached and for whatever reason they're not able to help, have you got any advice for how parents can still make progress, as it were?
1: It's a really... It's a really hard question because it's it so much depends on lots of different situations, you know. Uh, there, you know, whether or not it could work if if you know the right things can be put in place. Lots of different things. Also, I kind of will add that as far as my organisation is concerned. I manage looking after the girls and the women and the support there. I've got a fantastic parent-carer support team that do that work for the parents. So I kind of think they probably answer this question better. Um, I mean, it's really difficult. There are books out there that I've used in the past. There was one, I think, is it called Someone lady called Claire Sainsbury I'll have a look in the bookshelf there are some really good kind of books and supports and suggestions out there about how suggestions on how to form a kind of a positive collaborative relationship with the school you know I think for me one of my big things is is that sometimes you know we've got our child we're really trying to support them they're not getting the support you need I think people can automatically you, you feel this protection you feel this sort of the tigress or whatever a little bit and I think sometimes people can go in with a list of demands which is really difficult for, for teachers or whatever that are kind of working really hard overworked, trying to do the best they can so I think it's about I feel like it's about trying to do what we can to keep that relationship positive I mean in the book I read I remember 10 years ago when I was approaching this for the first time it was like you know can you do things like supporting at the school fates or being a re- helper for the reading the kids to read or can you help with lunchtime or this kind of stuff to kind of feel like you're doing your bit as part of the community a little bit um I think obviously there's that kind of thing I think is helpful but also stuff like um I mean, let's say they're not being included in so far as, uh, you know, play or y- that kind of thing. It could be that you might have some suggestions that you could send them some links to things that help. That kind of thing can can be helpful. Um, I think you can get obviously you can get advocates that can support you. Um, you know, I did a lot of um, it's kind of a, a way ago, but I did a lot of kind of um. I did things like work with them. I shared kind of little photos or videos or insights at home because sometimes they didn't see what I saw. So I think that was quite helpful. Um, you know, I think it's it's kind of working out. You know, the key people within the school that might be able to help you. You know, is it the senko? Is it the head of pastoral? It's trying to it's finding people that you can have a relationship with uh, within the school. I think it's about genning yourself up. Um, you know like going on there's so much brilliant stuff online now there's some brilliant social media groups it's about kind of watching the videos joining the organizations to kind of empower yourself in terms of learning about you know let's say you're approaching the EHCP or something like that it's it's just about kind of learning strategies yourself empowering yourself that sort of thing um, yeah I mean it's a really complicated questions because there's sometimes situations where the placement's just broken down as well you know I've got a lot of girls, you know, I've got girls who stopped going to school when they were six because of huge anxiety. Maybe they have a PDA profile. Maybe they weren't getting supported. They might have stopped eating completely because of their anxiety or difficult things. And, I, and, and you know, trying to suggest things like accommodations and reduced timetables and can they have, you know, cards to say timeout and stuff is really important. But sometimes I think it gets to a point where maybe that's not really working so well anymore.
3: So it's it's quite remarkable and very characteristic of you that I've I've asked a difficult question. It's quite extraordinary the whole range of different ideas there. And I hope that the listeners have found that really, really helpful because unfortunately there may well be some situations where we have this problem, but that's quite an extraordinary.
1: Uh, Yeah, sorry, and I, I kind of I hadn't really planned or prepared for that so I could have given it a bit more thought but it's it's a ma- the thing is all of these questions are really massive <laughs> so it's trying to kind of filter which isn't always my skill set. trying to filter out the most kind of important salient points but you know work working collaboratively with the, with a school I mean it's it's not easy to achieve but I'm, I think it boils down to for me I remember going to something in Bromley which someone set up where he he'd organized a space for parents to hear school Start stories and then vice versa and it brought us together and I think if there's any any way this is going to work it's trying to humanize each other a bit um and trying to empathize with whatever the situation's going on for the young person because I think sometimes I forget to do that um and I think when you do that it's gonna it's gonna work more effectively and collaboratively
3: okay so I have another question and and I'm not trying to ask another difficult question here but you said um, that your organisation, you founded it three years ago. Well, if we think about what's happened in the last three years, it's quite extraordinary, really, the turmoil that we've had in society to do with the pandemic. And in my line of work, I routinely hear many people in the education sector referring to what happened in terms of remote learning and the pandemic in a negative way way and the language that surrounds this one of lost learning and catch-up and you know it's frustrating on a number of different levels because I also know that there were many things that within a difficult circumstance that were achieved and I just wondered in the context of your work and the inclusive practice that you, have, you are involved in supporting so skillfully, what your perspective is in relation, particularly to do with the remote learning, and it not just be about the problems that it caused. I'm very conscious that for some learners, it was the opposite of loss. And there were actually, particularly with the use of technology, for some, there were genuine gains. And the loss has happened when they returned to normal yeah. school oh I
1: yeah that. i mean massive uh so this is a really good point so we founded a peer about two or three months before the pandemic <laughs> um i ran the first group session for four groups autistic girls aged 7 to 12 sort of eight weeks before lockdown right so we could never have un- anticipated it but we i mean we learned a lot in that our families have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic and and it's been really difficult to watch the kind of the experiences afterwards as well um you know within the you know because of the pandemic a lot of people you know were at home um some of our young people felt much more safe at home there you know they, were, they became less used to going into school into social environments and stuff so the transition back into school suddenly into a very busy place with all the sensory stuff all the people all of the expectations has been monumentally difficult for them and has affected them in so many ways including their mental health and so on we have i would say probably 15 to 20 percent of our community are not in school at the moment of you know a peers community and a lot of that has been since the pandemic Um, so the pandemic really affected our community and is ongoing To go back to your point about the opportunities for online learning I'm trying to answer a few things at once so sorry if it's a bit clumsy but the opportunities you know for online learning what we did during the pandemic because a lot of our community was isolated maybe they didn't weren't keeping in touch with friends in different ways through whatsapp or whatever other people were doing so we ran between you know during the course of the pandemic we ran about 200 online sessions which were all social interest based for our girls and our teens and our young women it was light blue peter i absolutely loved it so uh, we did them I'm, I'm getting really excited now we created <laughs> them on all sorts of things horses magic that was the best one we did cooking me and a lady called michelle from our kitchens every fortnight on a sunday we did all these different interest-based things and we sent these beautiful little resource boxes to kids homes before the activity so let's say we were doing gem gems and mythical creatures as an activity we would send a box of resources which might be uh i don't know i don't know like um a mining kit for gems and a well-being box that you might decorate with the gems and have ideas to support your well-being in it. So we'd send these things or let's say it was a Lego session on making Christmas decorations in Lego. We'd send the Lego to them beforehand. So we did that kind of thing. And then we ran ongoing online sessions to support the girls to enjoy their interests, connect together, have a good laugh because a lot of it's quite comedy and to share experiences and their skills. And that was a really key part of our support during the pandemic and what it meant that we did all these sessions, they got to know each other. I'm talking teens, I'm talking young women, I'm talking girls. And then when we restarted our in-person sessions in June 2021, they kind of recognised each other and had formed their relationships with staff and with young people already. So that transition in was to our real life sessions wasn't so difficult. And we maintain that now. So I still run online sessions. We've got Minecraft that I run with an autistic mentor, Megan, she's fantastic. She understands Minecraft, I don't. Uh, we run Roblox ones, we run still run activity ones. And it means for those girls that are struggling, maybe because of this at home, the pandemic's had that impact. They sometimes access our online sessions to get to know us, to trust us, as a gateway into coming to meet us online. Uh, in in real life uh, whether it's in-person groups whether it's visits ice skating or to dog you know cats protection or wherever, wherever we're off to so actually we did a lot of learning in the pandemic we saw it as an opportunity the online things we still use the online support so we've got an online w- young women's zoom group for example um but it's in complement and tandem with the in real life things if that makes sense and i think that's why you know, we do a lot online to support our girls to see us in real life. And I think that's sometimes been the difficulty with school is that they had a lot of time where they had no interaction with their school staff. They had no interactions with the kids within their school. So it was no wonder that when they went back into the school environment, particularly when it was suddenly 1,200 kids in the school, busy classes, everything again, it was just too much yeah, yeah. in one go. And, and now a lot of them are not in school.
2: So you've really taken, if you like, some of the lessons from the pandemic and embedded it in and changed your, maybe what your envisaged working practice was going to be.
1: Oh, for sure. You we know, wouldn't Without you, the pandemic, we wouldn't yeah. have done it in this way.
2: Yeah. Uh, but what a positive, what a positive joke, because, you know, to be able to offer both an alternative or a way forward to transition to the to the face to face stuff you you know and all of that good has come out of something that we were kind of forced to do
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's been like there's a lot of things that we can do because of technology, as we knew from the LGF, you know, that we couldn't do. You know, for example, we've got we run sessions for autistic teens online. We're doing less online now, but still doing a few. You know, we linked in with an autistic artist who was nominated for the Turner Prize and she's done a few workshops with us online. Now, she's based up in the north. I couldn't be doing this. and She couldn't be doing this amazing work with us if we weren't. Yeah doing this but because of the learnings from the pandemic we've done things online with her or with them and um and when we it meant that when we did a workshop at the Tate with her with them you know obviously the the young people had already met them so it yeah, it kind it of was it, it was more accessible for them yeah oh that's fabulous yeah no it's yes yeah, it's, I mean it I think there was a lot of opportunities in that pandemic and also, you know, for the parents as well. And, you know, with a lot of our young people about inclusion, we have to just to include them within our environment. You know, I run an alternative learning provision for girls and teens and those assigned female at birth who are not in school. So on a Monday, I run sessions for teens. And on a Wednesday, we run sessions for for younger girls. And these young people, some of them have not been in school for a number of years some of them have got ptsd i mean and i'm being really honest because of their school experiences some of them have got a whole range of challenges that they're dealing with at home through other things and so on so in order to include them is such a fragile thing and it's such a careful thing for that cohort i'm talking about my weekday cohort i staff these a lot higher and stuff like that you know we have to try and go every extra mile you know Dog walks, like I say, getting to know them. I've done zooms with girls where I'm talking to a closed bedroom door, and then maybe an ear, in a in a, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Just I to take I exactly that time to to yeah. to build. It's all been about a relationship building and building them in. I mean, I've got one young person. We're like a bit of a stepping stones, so a bridge provision away. So, but one young person who is year ten, bright, fantastic, 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 has. Has been had a reputation within a mainstream school as being a problem, a troublemaker, you know, a problem, lots of behavioral difficulty, is all that kind of thing. Um, came out of school, man, big mental health issues because of the trauma they'd experienced. And we've spent a term with them on our Monday group, building them back it up, building their trusting relationships, feeling like they could trust staff again, building their relationships with other girls, hearing them, listening to them. What result, what do you want to do what things that they want to do we did a thing where they raised money and with the money they raised they could choose what activities they're going to do and spent the money on the resources with them so we spent that time really building up their confidence really trying to include them and they're stepping now into a school again in January um and we hope that we're that gateway towards that but to include that young person and build them up again and whatever has been such a careful process. Um, yeah, and, and and that's what we're having to do for all our, our weekday students, which is a very different provision for what we do at the weekends. Um, yeah. uh,
0: so you know, that raises for me a couple of points. Um, one is the time that you've been able to invest and you, t- you were talking earlier about how um, you know, p- people in schools are often very time poor, yeah? Uh, and the other one was actually, is school always the best placement for, for children and young people to learn?
1: So which question, can you tell me which question I need to answer first, John? Just sometimes, <laughs> like, I can think of like a million things to say about yes. both of those, take, so I don't even know take, take where second, I'm going to start
0: with that. Take the second one first, because I think the first one yeah. Is, uh, um, is, is, yeah, so so, so is, uh, is school always the best place for children and young people to be educated
1: so in my opinion no it isn't um school you know like a really compassionate well-run way of school schools can be fantastic i've got you know i've got you know teachers are fantastic right you know they can be amazing both of my children have been educated in schools one in specialist school one in mainstream schools like effect, pretty effectively, right? They're happy, they're progressing and so on. So for them, it's working well for them. And by the end, I could say that was the answer for them. But is it for every young person? No, it's not. Because, you know, this is the trajectory that I see. And, and I will tell you why I think it's not for some young people. I see young people, we start at six or seven. So I see them when they're really little. and I, and, and I see them when they're in primary school. And it's working okay for them. You know, they're they're accessing the academic stuff with a few accommodations, hopefully okay. They've kind of got friends, some sort of friendships. It might be beginning to get a bit tricky, but the other kids are young, they're young. We're in a primary school where you've got the same teacher all day, every day, most of the time. It's small, it's nurturing-ish, it's working okay at this point. Then we're getting older, we're approaching secondary school. And this is where I see that for some young people, it becomes really difficult. And then we're getting to see so this whole transition to secondary for our community is really massive and very, very difficult. The social, the friendship situation is getting more difficult. The academics and having to manage your own, all these different lessons with all these different people is getting more difficult. Puberty's kicked in. So there's all the sensory and stuff, you know, all the different things attached to that. You know, there's things like social media there's all these different things and you're going and at this point when you've got there's issues really beginning to come up you're in a school it tends to be with maybe 10 classes across a year group with 30 kids in each class there's sensory issues you're not necessarily able to get the amount of support you need I think for some young people school doesn't always work but they can't create the environment or provide all the accommodations that the young person needs for various issues reasons so I've got young people who are academically able enough to be in a mainstream school or whatever um but they're 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 not being supported there they're not happy there you know I've got a lot of young people that have been in a mainstream various mainstream schools, various specialist schools and for various reasons it's not worked out and we need to do you know, they, they've had to do something different and they deserve us to do something different. Sorry, Carol.
2: I'm just, I'm just gonna say it's what it's a size matters thing, isn't it? Because- It's a size matters thing. It, it is a size matters thing, because if you look um, historically, because people will always say to me, well, where were these children before? This is what they say to me all the time. Well, where, mm. why have you got all these numbers now? Why, you know? And one of the things um, that I'm beginning to think is because if you look back, we had far more schools, and there were smaller schools. And in a smaller school, all the things you've identified there: there's fewer sensory issues, there's fewer people to have to cope with, um, fewer teachers to have to understand, and and then partly because of economies of scale and all those kind of things. Um, we we've made bigger Makes schools sense. and then we brought our schools together into mats with and and moved from things and we've just made it far more difficult not just for neurodivergent youngsters oh good but for, you know all children we're asking such a lot of them now aren't we um as these schools get bigger and bigger and of the stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. I mean, you know, our weekday groups are different to our weekend ones. Our weekday groups, we've got groups of up to eight. Most of them are smaller. And I staff it, three staff for every four kids. So we can really give them that nurturing, give them that listening ear. We, If one of them's struggling, you know, on Monday, I had one girl who couldn't get in through the door that day. So I could spend that time bringing the resource, offering the choice, giving a different... But you couldn't I couldn't do that necessarily in this massive school, you know. Um, so, you know, I think what I would say with that is that if that sometimes there are reasonable adjustments that can happen that will facilitate someone who is not in school or struggling to be in school to be integrated and happier in school. But it is a very unforgiving difficult environment being, you know, you get lost, particularly if you're an autistic girl who masks. And so you're all like trying to do everything really well. No one's going to notice but the stress and the anxiety you've got underneath and the impact on your own mental health. You know, so it, it's a quite it's a tough environment to be in. And I think we're seeing a lot more girls like our in our weekday groups. I've got girls who are homeschooled where parents have just said, you know, this school system's not working for her let's just make work it out as a family and do it ourselves so maybe they're linking in with Interhigh online things for subjects maybe they're paying tutors to come maybe they're linking in with local home school groups they're working making something that work but also i link very um closely with the a2e teams within our local authority so we've got four quadrants within our local authority in surrey so four areas and there are four acts To education teams, so I've built really strong links with with a couple of those, and they work with all of the kids that are not in school at the moment. Some of these kids are on AOTAS packages, so education other than at school packages, and we are one of those providers. So, for example, I've got six. Well, she's going to be sixteen tomorrow, but I've got a sixteen-year-old who may get some tutoring for the academic stuff may get access to a let's say, a farm provision for something else, and then they they access a peer for social and emotional uh, connection, being with um, autistic and neurodivergent staff and peers, and that kind of side of things. So it's kind of a it's a more bespoke package, and it works because it's bespoke, and s- large schools can't really do bespoke very easily.
0: So, so is it fair to say, Joe, that then in our thinking around inclusion, uh, we have to be realistic and recognise when we can't include, or when inclusion, when including is not actually the best option.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I wrestle with this all the time. Um, I think you know, essentially, I've I've set up, we've set up an organisation that's specifically for autistic girls and teen girls and those assigned female at birth. So we're not inclusive <laughs> for anyone that doesn't sit within that already. So you know, you kind of, you know, and I do think for particularly for minority groups it's really important to have spaces that don't include everybody that you you can get understanding support self-awareness confidence within that group I do think that's important so I don't think every space should be inclusive to absolutely everybody but and, and I do think there needs to be opportunities for that kind of breakout work um but also I think you know any you know Inclusion has to be a priority, but other things have to be priorities too, you know, sa- safety, safeguarding. For me, you know, if including someone it means I can't keep other people safe or it necessarily them safe, despite accommodations we've tried and things we've done, sometimes we can't always, in, you know, include everybody. So I don't think, I think... I don't think inclusion is everything I think it's really important to do to do what we can to include people in all the ways that matter socially emotionally and so on but sometimes it doesn't mean that a mainstream school without all that financial support without the time without adequate staff is always the right environment for for a young person we've got a we've got a listen and especially particularly where there's been trauma and massive social emotional mental health things sometimes they need something a lot quieter to rebuild them yeah. um, and to help them heal yeah. and a big school's not going to do that
2: but is it not part of the whole uh, inclusion isn't a, a, a single vision so you're saying to me it's it's very important that um if you like The smaller communities, uh, self-identifying or uh, uh, however they identify, communities have their own spaces and their own times, and and are uh, yeah, yeah. But what I'm what I'm saying is that that's entirely correct because that is still part of inclusion, is it not? Because all the work you're talking about is giving these people the strength and the self the self-awareness and the self-resilience or whatever you want to call it to attempt to be part of the bigger picture
1: yeah yeah that's i mean that's a really good way of saying it because yeah. i kind of wrestle with it so you know for example i've got girls that don't go to anything except to our activities
2: yeah
1: they at don't the moment, leave the house except for us at the moment so what we're doing for example is we might organize a bowling trip or a climbing trip and yeah. we're doing it in a small inclusive group with supportive staff but it may mean after that that they're going to continue that particular mm-hmm. thing yes. yeah. and it becomes a hobby and it's a way of accessing the community more so yeah for sure I mean it's just it's I, th- I think it's, it's, it's just providing for... those opportunities in a kind of a yeah. scaffolding way and hopefully it'll I'm go forward
2: vision of um that society is now so complex whether we're talking school or the bigger society of life that sometimes in order to participate at whatever level you can you need that little bit of uniqueness to give you the stress just as it's like gonna... a
1: trampoline or something yes. you know that's how yes. I feel so like let's say you know we go we're often off to cats protection, horse sanctuaries, dog things, because animals is the most, the thing that our girls love, you know, love the most. Well, you know, if they're, you go along to, let's say, a horse sanctuary or something like that, they might meet a staff member that's autistic and think, oh, this is the way it works for me, and I I can balance that, and this is the way I've made it work, then it might be suddenly they start doing volunteering there, and then they've worked out. So it's like these little Groups like ours, hopefully, and we can't do it for everybody and I wrestle with that all the time, but the groups like ours can just start that. We're we're laying the seeds. So like at the moment, I'm exploring Asdan because we want to build our learning provision. So, you know, a lot of the kind of the Asdan courses around life skills, vocational skills, work, uh, you know, work skills, functional skills that kind of thing that's also about providing that springboard to be able to go and work and because the thing is I think we get obsessed with the society in our society and I kind of see it a bit different now is there is a way we do life right and there's a way and that and school is a big part of that so you start school at four you do primary you get 11 then you do your GCSEs and then this the and then you might go on either to college or to work and you do this at certain ages and I think if we're being truly inclusive we've got to kind of let this just free ourselves from that that it might be for some young people who says you get your first job at 18 or 21 who says you have to do your GCSEs at 15 who says we have to do this sometimes it's about like providing those supportive opportunities and that Journey, which is in a way that's appropriate that for that young person, because if you don't do it in that way, they're not going to be there. What is it? Sixteen percent of autistic adults are in employment. You know, we have, and and that is often because we've been trying to do it the same way as yes, you're right, as the majority. And so, yeah, I think that's that kind of thing. But it's 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 listening and providing those small groups and and i think also changing with the times so like i've done a lot of work around um and standing you know lgbtqia plus um young people in my community there's a lot of autistic people identify um as trans or or you know you know etc um and so you know we've done i think you've got to do a lot of learning around being inclusive in ways that you don't understand. Like I feel like if you're in a majority group, you have a responsibility to educate yourself about that minority group, right? So you know, I'm a woman, I've and I'm 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 you know a person of colour. I kind of understand some sort of that thing, but, but but I still have a responsibility to educate myself. But I'm not in the LGBT. BTQIA+ community. So I've seen it as my responsibility to educate myself. You know, when I was writing my policy about including trans people and so on, um I spoke to gendered intelligence and people like that to do it. So I think inclusion is about seeing that as a majority member in a particular group you have a responsibility to like educate yourself and really understand that experience because you can't in, you can't include someone or support someone without
0: without doing that yeah i I think that's that's actually a a lovely point to finish on
2: yes that's excellent (laughs) excellent point
0: yeah Yeah. just gorgeous and 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 your whole message for me has not been about um these are the things to do it's about these are the ways to think it's about the listening communicating educating understanding the flexibility the the you know the Seeing, not just seeing people as different, but understanding difference and, and appreciating how living in a in a world that is different. And that we, yeah, we're I think inclusion is a
1: pro- inclusion is a process, and you know, for me, it's. Yeah, it's you know I I think this idea that what are the ways to be you know in inclusive education you do this that you know, the it, other it it's not like that like I think it's it's and as a profession I think you've got to kind of you've got to see it as a learning experience we're going to get stuff wrong all the time you know we're not going to have the answers we've got to we've got to be reflective and, and it's uh, but it's about if there's all if there's a real authentic commitment and belief in Making a difference, you know, trying to make a difference, despite the fact we've all got a zillion hurdles. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting invoices paid, whatever. Mm-hmm. As long as you, you're trying, you kind of got to, I guess, like lots of things, you kind of got to, you got to leave it, yeah. you know, let it go. I'll keep keep
2: trying, trying for- Joe, because you're
0: brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think also, Joe, we got to forgive ourselves. Yeah. We recognize that we don't get it right, but we have to yeah. recognize that we are trying, we are doing our best.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: As
1: obviously you are. Thank you. Well, you know, I'm 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 giving it a go. So yeah.
3: <laughs> well keep up the good work, Joe, and thank you so much for your contributions today on so many different levels. And and uh, your point about it's about ways of thinking as much as ways of doing. Um this isn't about nice neat packages that you can apply into a situation which will therefore then equal a certain outcome as you say, very eloquently, Joe, it's just not about that, but I'm just so Yeah, I mean, you know, people- there
1: are things that, I mean, it's, you know, it's difficult when it becomes a conversation rather than, you know, there are things obviously that you can do, like, oh, provide information before you go, like visuals and photos of the staff and names of the staff and photos of the school and what we're going to do and what you need to bring, you know, there are things that you could, you can do that make a difference but it's not just like an yeah like a toolkit which you just do um and then that's two
2: things to that joe you know yes they're all out there and those are well documented but if you're doing them without the attitude of making it work so what you've highlighted in this session is that unless we've got that correct mindset that listening Yeah, I can put all the visuals. I've seen teachers where they've got the visual timetable, they've put the stuff up, but it's still not happening because they haven't got the mindset. And that's what I've really enjoyed this morning. Thank you.